The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today to take a look at tech stocks. My guest is Barron's Associate Editor, Eric Savitz, and he's been spending the week at the Goldman Sachs Communicopia and Technology Conference in San Francisco. It started Monday and it ends on Friday. I'm glad Eric could carve out some time to tell us what he's learning this week. How goes it out there, Eric? It's going great, Lauren. Thanks for having me on the show. Wonderful. Good conference, I, I imagine. Yeah. So this is, an, it, it's it's been a fascinating event. Um, you know, there's, uh, uh, this is actually two Goldman Sachs events combined. They used to do two separate events, one on tech stocks, one on uh, communication stocks, thus uh, Communicopia. Uh, so tell me something. Tell me who's out there and tell me what the most surprising things are that you've heard so far. Sure. So, uh, you know, there's, uh, this is a, uh, it's it's actually a fantastic conference. There's there's probably uh, about three thousand people at the conference. Uh, Goldman says this is their largest attendance of any investment conference they've ever had, Fascinating. Uh, uh, which is interesting. And they have a they've they've had a fantastic lineup of speakers. Uh, just in uh, just yesterday, for example, uh, got to hear the CEOs from. Uh, all, uh, a lot of the major um, entertainment streaming companies. So Bob Chapek from uh, Disney, and we had the CEOs of um, Paramount and uh, uh, and Comcast, and then you had all three of the major um, uh, wireless telecom companies had their CEOs there: Verizon and AT and T and T Mobile, and then a whole host of other companies. And it was a good place to get a read on. On what's going on, and um, you know, and I think there's a uh, what, 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 what the it, you know, it's a little hard to sum up like what were probably 200 presentations over the course of the week, and did not see every single one of them uh, for obvious reasons. But I think in general, you know, there's a great sense of caution. Uh, there's a lot of nervousness about the economy. You know, you remember that on in the middle of the week, uh, we got this. Uh, uh, surprise, uh, kind of unpleasant surprise on, on inflation, which triggered a gigantic sell-off in the market right in the middle of the conference. Um, and so there's a lot of nervousness about what the Fed is going to do. Now, you have to remember that technology stocks in particular often are uh, adversely affected by rising interest rates. And, you know, so, so most of these stocks have been hammered, um, not just this week, but, you know, throughout the period since the market peaked in November. And so there's still a lot of nervousness. Um, you know, I was going to ask you whether there was much discussion about the NASDAQ's awful month and about some of these broader issues sinking the tech. Economy. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, all of these investors are trying to pick through uh, uh, the, the there's mind. bargains out there. Well, y- yes and no. I mean, as uh, 
Um, you know, as as uh, our friend Dan Niles said when I talked to him uh, for the magazine a couple of issues ago, um, you know, any stock that's down ninety percent, the downside is is still hundred percent that's left over, right? So, right. so there's still downside. I think the the thing that one thing that happened this week is there was a there there became a consensus that um, the terminal uh, Fed funds rate, like where the Fed will stop. Is now looks higher than it was maybe before the most recent inflation reading. That could change, but like as as that that uh, dynamic would suggest additional pressure on technology shares, and that's sort of what we saw this week. Now I think there are some other things that are uh, positives. Um, you know, what, for example, um, you know there are there are in part some of the problems that have been plaguing the sector. Are beginning to ease, so we're seeing a little bit better situation on component availability, although with a couple of noteworthy exceptions, which I can talk about. Um, so that's a little bit better. Um, you know, I think on uh, there are some areas, some consumer-related areas, in particular, particular around experiences that seem to be going okay. Travel, uh, for example, uh, seems to uh, be on the mend. We had some pretty positive comments at the conference from the CEOs of Expedia and Airbnb. So like there's, there's some sense that consumers do want to travel and, and, um, and, and uh, spend some of their discretionary income that way. Um, but I think the biggest concern is around enterprise technology spending. Um, and we had a few data points that suggest reasons for concern. So very early on the first day of the conference on Monday, um, uh, the disk drive and uh, flash memory company, Western Digital, gave a presentation and basically said things have gotten worse since the end of their most recent quarter. Um, Seagate, their primary competitor in disk drives, said kind of the same thing, that things have gotten a little worse since the end of the June quarter. And they had only recently uh, reduced their full year guidance. So there's some, and, and both of those, by the way, you know, you think of disk drive companies historically as being a bit like a PC play, but really these companies are more about serving the data center. Um, now there aren't most, uh, most people will realize there are no PCs with uh, the disk drives in them anymore for the most part. So, uh, so, so that's a little concerning. Uh, there well, was another it seems like It seems like companies are gearing up for a recession and preparing for it to some degree. Yes, I think that's true. Uh, there was another good example, which I'll throw out, which is uh, Corning uh, was at the, of course, their specialty glass maker, and they, they particularly called out softness in large screen TV sales. And, um, you know, I think in some of these things, what you're seeing is a kind of reversal of some of the trends that we saw during the pandemic, where people bought a lot of stuff that they use at home, PCs and TVs and things like that. And so now they're- And now they're, they're traveling. And now they're <laughs> traveling instead. Um, so, so, so that's, um, those are a few of the initial takeaways. I mean, I think it's, um, there, there's certainly, uh, there certainly was an eager audience looking for ideas. Um, and you know, there were some, some companies had better stories than others, but, um. So one company I'd like to focus on a little bit is Disney and sure. it seems to be leading the charge in reimagining streaming. Tell us a bit about Bob Chapek's presentation. He's the yeah. relatively new CEO at Disney. And what some of the coming changes at Disney mean for the industry and for the stock? 
Yeah, Chapek's presentation, I should say these were all interviews, you know, analysts interviewing the CEOs, but Chapek's session was one of the most interesting and he was kind of all over the map. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'll rattle off a few things. So he was, uh, for one thing, he was asked about ESPN. Now there's been a lot of speculation that, uh, and sort of suggestions for some investors that Disney ought to get rid of ESPN, that it's not a good fit with the rest of their portfolio. JPEG made it clear that he has no intention or interest in selling ESPN, that he thinks it belongs as part of the portfolio, and that they're going to do some things to make it uh, more valuable. And he, they're, they're, I'll point out to two in particular. One, there was a lot of discussion around uh, gambling. Now, you know, some Disney peop, Disney investors might find the idea of Disney being associated with gambling is a little con. Uh, right, you really turn your nose up at that. Yes, but on the other hand, sports fans are quite interested in gambling, and uh, JPEG made it clear that uh, at some point in time they're going to uh, create a way for people watching uh, programming on ESPN to make wagers on that programming, probably taking to a secondary site, likely not directly run by Disney, but in a partnership with some, uh, you know, gaming entity. Uh, but that's coming at some point. And I think JPEX view is that they kind of need to do that as, uh, Just as relevant. more widespread. Yeah. Now, the other interesting thing about ESPN, I think, is, uh, you know, ESPN is a core part of, uh, of uh, cable bundles uh, for certainly for sports fans. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the cable industry is shrinking rapidly. And I think ESPN, uh, of course, realizes that. And at some point, um, you know, they're going to explore a freestanding version. Now, there is ESPN Plus, which has some of the programming, uh, some programming for ESPN. But the idea of like a full-fledged, like streaming version of ESPN isn't quite what they're offering now. But that's inevitable. They, as JPEG said, they kind of see the writing on the wall. Um, so Let that's me ask an you, why, why didn't Netflix come to this conference? I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> I don't know. It may have something to do with their, uh, their uh, who has banking relationships with who. I'm not really ah, sure. But okay. what I will tell you is all of their, all of, a lot of their key competitors did. I mean, in Disney's case, um, you know, they they also talked about, uh, you know, so like like Netflix, Disney is about to add an advertising tier uh, to their core streaming services. So and Disney is doing it in a very aggressive way. Disney is basically taking their current service, which is seven ninety nine a month. Uh, they're increasing it to ten ninety nine a month if you don't want to have any ads. And now you can buy an ad supported version for the same price that you're now getting the other version. Uh, without ads, that's a very aggressive strategy. JPEG's view is they're not going to see any churn, that they have it's tremendous value. Um, you know, they have a, a, a large and growing audience. He's not worried about that. I, I think the, meanwhile, the other element of this story, oh, and the other thing, of course, is that he points to the success that Hulu has had on uh, selling advertising versions of its uh, uh, services as evidence that uh, this strategy will work. He doesn't think there's gonna be any dilution uh, to uh, margins as a result of this. Now, I think it is worth talking about Hulu for a moment. So Hulu is about two thirds owned by Disney and a third owned by Comcast or, uh, right? So, and the relationship with the two includes a provision that um, in 2024, so starting 
not too long from now, um, the both companies have uh, a right to act. So Disney has the right to demand basically that Comcast sell them their piece, and then Comcast actually has the right to put to to force Disney to buy back the rest of it. And both of their CEOs were uh, uh, addressed this topic uh, on the same day, a couple of hours apart, uh, yesterday afternoon, and it was quite interesting. So Chapek's view is. He would love to buy the rest of Hulu and he would love to buy it as soon as possible. Like he really wants to own it. And I think part of that is a view that it would be prelude to combining Hulu and Disney Plus, which would make an even more powerful single platform. Um, now, the, the, the hiccup is Ryan Roberts, the CEO of Comcast. His view is basically Hulu is super valuable. If you put it up for sales, a freestanding business. Uh, he would want to buy it. Uh, <laughs> I see a fight brewing. Um, yes, and that is actually his way, I think, of saying we're not giving this away for nothing. Um, you know, Bob, you're going to have to pay up to get the rest of this. And it's going to be a fascinating story to watch over the next couple of years um, as this uh, reaches some sort of denouement because, um, you know, it, it is a valuable asset. They have uh, tens of millions, I don't know the exact number, tens of millions of uh, customers and um, would be valuable to either one of them. So that, that it was, so the Disney session was super interesting. I'll say one other thing about Disney, by the way, that I think is interesting. JPEG, um, has, there's been some stories that said that Disney is thinking about some kind of membership program and JPEG talked extensively about the potential, the potential value of combining uh, data on uh uh, park visitor activity with uh, Disney Plus. So the idea would be, you know, you rode on, I don't know, you went to the Haunted Mansion while you were at Disney World. Maybe you would like to watch the Haunted Mansion movie on, um, on Disney Plus. And that's a fascinating idea. They haven't actually announced such a thing yet, but he talked about it extensively about the value in both directions of having this information on people's activity, both in the parks and um, in streaming. And uh, we'll see. I mean, I think it all boils down to Disney think they have a fantastic fan base and uh, they want to monetize it in any way they can. And so, yeah, so that, so the, anyway, the APEC thing was a, a fascinating st uh, storyline um, and lots of moving parts. We'll see where it all lands. I, what I love about Disney is that the company continuously evolves. The stock hasn't evolved much lately, but that could change, I think, over time. That could change over time. So let's talk about Verizon next. The company ruffled some investors with the news that net additions of consumer wireless customers look to be trending down in the third quarter. What is the reason for that? And does it suggest anything about Apple? Yeah, I mean, I think these are sort of two separate questions. So, I, in, in what what happened with Verizon was uh, Hans uh, Ves, Hans Vestberg, the CEO of Verizon, came out and said first, uh, "Well, things have gotten a little better since last quarter." So you have to remember, in the June quarter, uh, Verizon reported very disappointing results on a couple of fronts. Uh, one, they reduced their full year guidance, so the street never, never likes that, and they also reported a, a pretty substantial. Uh, loss of wireless customers in the quarter. And, you know, in the, in the current environment, like this is a mature market. You're losing wireless customers. 
you are losing them to the competition. It's not people are like, eh, I don't need a phone. No, it's it's people are going to to, to the other guys. <laughs> yeah, so both AT&T and T-Mobile added customers in the quarter. Verizon lost them. Um, now it was it was uh, one element of the storyline is that Verizon had raised prices uh, fairly recently, and um, and in fact uh, w- that figures into their outlook for the September quarter. So what Vestberg said was that since the end of the quarter, they've been seeing um, improving uh, gross additions. So, so you know you, they they talk about both gross and net additions. Quarter, you know net is subtracting out the ones who leave. Uh, so that gross additions have gotten better since the end of the quarter. And they also said that store traffic to their own, you know, their company on stores was actually up double digits uh, a year, uh, over the last couple of months. However, because they're seeing some churn as they increase prices, net ads in the quarter are going to be down again in the September quarter. And that was disappointing to the street. Um, you know, they Vesper thinks this is a passing phase but i think what is true and this gets us to the apple element which we'll talk about more in a second is it is a hugely competitive environment there are only three players um uh, well let me amend that there are three primary players but then you have um a bunch of like uh upstarts mostly cable companies including comcast um um and and also charter who are adding wireless services ironically reselling uh, service that they're carrying on on one of the major uh, mobile carriers. But it's it's a really competitive environment. And uh, that's not going to change. Now, I think what's interesting about Apple's, the Apple situation, of course, Apple just introduced the new iPhones. They've, uh, you know, you don't have them yet. They're about to go on sale. Uh, you can pre-order. Like the early read that's is the that- The iPhone 14. Good. Yeah, the iPhone 14. Uh, the the uh, the early read on demand is generally pretty strong, um, but that's not that surprising because you know early demand for every Apple iPhone tends to be pretty strong because there's been you know typically consumers know there's a new phone coming and so stop buying them for a few months heading into the launch. Um, so we'll see. But you know one thing that happens when you get a new iPhone is. Uh, a new, a new introduction of a new iPhone is the carriers offer aggressive uh, discounts. Uh, buy my new iPhone, not right. their new right. iPhone. Um, and uh, it, by all indications, uh, so far, it looks like the promotional programs for things like trade-ins and stuff like that um, are pretty aggressive. And uh, so, you know, it's just one more example of the high levels of competition. I'll throw out one other example of like how bitter the rivalry is between these three companies right now um at&t um uh has filed a lawsuit against t-mobile they just did this um maybe a week or two ago they filed a lawsuit against t-mobile um asserting that t-mobile is lying about at&t's um uh policies on providing discounts to seniors and it's a uh, i don't know who's right here exactly but you know that the fact that AT and T would would decide to file a lawsuit about this um, just goes to show you just how bitter this competition is. And by the way, you know T Mobile, um, once viewed as kind of the also ran, has um, uh, has become sort of the 
the superstar of the sector over the last year or two and is now the largest of the three by market cap, which is kind of stunning. And I think um, its stock has been the superstar. And the stock has been a superstar and has done actually pretty well this year. So, yeah. so it's, it's a fascinating uh, landscape. Right. That's Boy, that's a, a couple of industries you've mentioned with a lot of stiff competition. So exactly. I want to move on to another topic related to the conference, then we'll go into something that happened this week beside the conference. But I will remind listeners, we're going to take some questions on tech stocks and tech investing later in the call. So now's the time to send in your questions. So Eric, it's been a lousy year for tech investment bankers. Great that Goldman had this big conference, but let's remember there have been virtually no IPOs. There's been very little in the way of mergers and acquisitions. And now as day follows night, there are layoffs in the investment banking world. So I'm curious what Goldman's tech bankers had to say about the current state of affairs and more, more to the point, what is their prediction for the future? Yeah, so uh, so let's let's break it down into a couple of pieces. Um, so as you say, the IPO market is basically dead, and particularly in tech, there just aren't any deals, and that's for a few reasons. Uh, for one thing, in an environment when the market is in uh, a downswing, um, it's difficult to get deals done. No one quite knows how to price anything. You know, we came from a period like last fall. And, you know, in November, we were we saw valuations that were extremely high, you know, 30, 40, 50 times sales for um, for particularly for uh, enterprise software companies. That is not the case anymore. And no one is quite sure what the right valuation is. Risk levels are down. You know, people are being more cautious. Um, it just makes it a really tough environment to get any, to get anything done. And, I, and, you know, there's a sense that there's a huge backlog that there are many companies that would like to go public, both venture-backed companies and private equity-backed companies that would love to tap the IPO market. But there is just no likelihood that that is going to happen until the markets show some, um, some signs of stability. And that probably doesn't happen until the market decides the Fed is almost done raising rates. So the near-term outlook for IPOs is just not very good. Now, there, you know, there have been a few here and there. Um, you know, I think one thing that was telling that we saw this week was there was a report that Intel, which has been uh, planning to take its uh, Mobileye business public, Mobileye does uh, software and, and uh, chips for uh, autonomous driving. You know, Intel had thought they could sell this business and raise 50 at a $50 billion valuation. And, you know, the report this week was that, well, maybe now they think it's worth $30 billion. That's quite a discount to where they were before. That also has implications for another chip deal that we're eagerly, eagerly awaiting, which will be an IPO for ARM, the chip design company now owned by SoftBank. They also expect to go public at a big valuation, but I think it's going to be a little while before they get out. So not much going on, on the IPO front. Then on the, on the M&A front, now, there have been some things that have happened, but uh, but but it's been very quiet for a few reasons. So, um, in terms of uh, strategic buyers, so you know corporate buyers, um, they've been reluctant to use uh, use capital to do deals in an environment when the value of their own stock is uncertain, when the future of the economy is uncertain. So you have like hesitancy by 
strategic buyers on the private equity side, we have seen some deals, um, you know, mo mostly um, driven by uh, uh, Toma Bravo, uh, the big tech private equity firm has done a bunch of uh, bunch of deals. But, but even in private equity, part of the problem has been uh, kind of an unfriendly capital market. Most of these deals, remember, they are leveraged buyouts. So you, you are borrowing a part of the proceeds to do these deals. And um, with rates rising, it's not a very friendly environment. Uh, so what do these bankers see coming? Well, I think they're not sure. I mean, I, I think there's a sense that on the, so the, the positive things would be huge backlog of IPOs that want to come out. There's a huge amount of private equity dollars sitting on the sidelines. Like, I mean, people haven't stopped investing in private equity funds. They have a lot of capital. Um, they've mostly been focusing on trying to fix the things that they own. Uh, but at some point, that money is going to have to get put to work. And, you know, and the other element of this is there are a lot of companies that are now uh, trading with 50% off signs on their backs uh, from where they were just late last year. I think there is a period of uh, kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, acceptance where, like, where, where corporate management teams and boards have to understand that the valuations they were seeing late, late last year it, are not coming back. And so as that happens, um, you know, you get people who are willing to do deals at prices below their, you know, 52 week highs. But uh, this, so this makes me very excited about the post rate hike era, because it means there's tremendous innovation yet to be unleashed. And there will be a lot of great deals when things finally open up. Although, we yeah, so just the, I think the key question is just timing and right. you know, how right. persistent will the Fed be and when will we see the uh, uh, see the ice begin to break. And it's it, they're they're not quite ready to call it yet. We'll leave that to our econ team. So I want to just talk about something that happened today. Uh, Adobe has agreed to buy the design software firm Figma, a private company, for $20 billion. Wall Street absolutely hates the deal. Adobe shares are down 16% today. The stock is having its worst day since 2010. And yet some folks in our own Barron's art department say Figma is a state-of-the-art company and that it fills an important hole in Adobe's product lineup. So I'm wondering whether the market might have it wrong here. What, well, what's going on? How do you interpret this? Sure. So Figma is a is a web-based tool to help uh, to to it's used to collaboratively do design, uh, in particular for interfaces for like web applications or mobile applications. Um, the the this is a it's, a, it's a red hot startup. They had raised about $330 million in venture capital. They've been around for about 10 years. It's uh, it's very buzzy, growing fast. They have, uh, you know, 90% gross margins. It's like a, it's a very appealing property. Um, the, 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 and, and this, by the way, is an area where Adobe has, um, has made an attempt to participate. They have a kind of desktop version of this kind of design tool, but as you know, and I, I just talked a little while ago to the CFO of Adobe about the deal, and he kind of admitted that, look, Figma is uh, way ahead of them on this front and, and just has a better approach, a web-based approach that Adobe didn't do. And so I think Adobe is kind of conceding that they, they messed up a little bit and trying to address this market. Now, I think the reason the market is, uh, is not happy with the deal is, 
Yeah, so there's a couple of reasons for that. So one is, so while Figma is, Figma is fast growing, they, they um, Adobe said that exiting uh, 2022, uh, they'll have about, Figma will have about a $400 million revenue run rate. Now, the problem with that is they're buying it for 50 times that, right? So that's a very high valuation. Um, and Adobe said it's going to be three years before the deal becomes three years after the close, and it won't close for probably about a year, but three years after that, before it becomes accretive to non-gap earnings. And that's like a long time to wait. When, and or, an, or another way to say this, it's going to be a drag on earnings for the next few years. So, so the, you didn't like that. And then the other element that likely is contributing to the sentiment here is Adobe has been a pretty aggressive stock repurchaser. Like they most recent quarter, and they by the way they announced earnings today too. Um, they they bought back in the quarter that just ended about one point eight billion dollars of stock, um, and they've been buying back a lot of stock. And because of the needs for uh, to fund this deal, they're going to cut back their stock repurchases just enough to offset. Uh, issuance to new um, to, to new shares, which means they're probably going to buy back maybe half a billion dollars a quarter. So less stock is never viewed as a good thing. Right. Um, have an expensive deal that's going to be dilutive to earnings and reduce their stock repurchases. I mean, Adobe's view is this is a transformative acquisition, um, but it's going to take some time to play out in the numbers and. In the current environment, the street is like not very forgiving. It reminds me um, a little bit of a, another recent deal where Oracle uh, bought this company, Cerner, in the uh, health, electronic health records business, which Oracle views that deal as transformative. Um, but when they did that deal, the stock pulled off. And again, in part because Adobe, uh, Oracle had to slow down the rate of stock repurchases, which they also had been very aggressive. Well, these are the things that CEOs have to weigh and measure. This is what they get paid for. It transforms. Yeah, you know, Adobe is betting on the future, and shareholders see heightened risk uh, and happy about uh, the present. Yeah, yeah, very interesting situation. So, one more thing I want to mention before we sign off: Oracle reported pretty strong early earnings earlier this week. And the news seems to have gotten lost in all the chatter about inflation and the stock market sell-off and so forth. But let's close on an up note. Tell me what the company said and why it's important. Yeah, you know, so so I've been pretty optimistic about the turnaround at Oracle. I mean, Oracle, of course, is you know the uh, is a true legacy software company that yes. you know, has been around a long time um, and has been in this process of taking their both their um, enterprise applications and their database software and moving it to the cloud. <clears throat> you know, they traditionally run on, you know, corporate data center um, computers. And uh, by moving to the cloud, you, you get, uh, first of all, it makes them more competitive with some of their newer competitors. And it also um, improves the economics of the business. Now, it, this, this thing is a battleship. It takes some time. But what we've started to see in the last few quarters is, is improving growth from Oracle. Now, the numbers were a little messy because they did just complete this Cerner deal, uh, which made their revenue growth look bigger than it you know, really is from an organic point of view. But the bottom line is that they had about 8% organic growth in the quarter just ended, which is really, uh, which is really good for Oracle. And the guidance going forward is pretty positive. They see double-digit growth in revenue and profits going forward. 
as they move more and more of their business to the cloud, uh, you know, the stock that trades pretty inexpensively. I mean, it it's still a company that uh, sparks a lot of skepticism on the street, which means, you know, the multiples are relatively low. Um, but it's a, a, I think that this turnaround story is just getting going and, um, and the, the, the kind of uh, kicker is that they have a cloud business or it's called Oracle cloud infrastructure, which is, uh, you know, they're a distant player compared to the three big players in, in cloud computing, Amazon, uh, Google, and Microsoft. Uh, but they are a player and they are gaining some traction. They have relationships with, uh, you know, TikTok and some other key players, Zoom. Um, it, it's a wild card, but, you know, they're a player in that market and it uh, it's going to pay off over time. So, yeah, so pretty good quarter. The stock has sort of been meh. Um, they got, uh, there was an analyst who came out and had sort of some, uh, you know, a little bit of a cautionary tone on the stock uh, this week. But I, I still think that... Um, uh, we're just starting to see the beginning of the Oracle turnaround story. and uh, That sounds worth... really interesting. We'll be watching that. So I feel, Eric, I'm sitting here in New York, but I feel like I'm in San Francisco with you and that I've gone to that conference and I've heard all the all the stuff that's worth hearing. So, I <laughs> Well, wanna... you know, we, uh, there's a, it's, uh, there was a lot going on over uh, the course of the week, and I'm not sure I got everything, but it's... Uh, well, you got a lot was... of good things. So I want to thank you for sharing all that with our readers today. And um, I want to thank everybody for joining us. Tomorrow on Barron's Live, the subject is trends in money laundering. And hopefully our audience does not know too much about that. <laughs> I hope they're not looking for tips. <laughs> right. Precisely. Market Watch financial investigations reporter Lucas I. Alpert will speak with Sven Stumbauer, an expert with consultancy Grant Thornton, about developments in international crime sanctions, money laundering, and anti-money laundering regulations around the world. Sounds like a fascinating call. That's it for today, everyone. Thank you so much, Eric, and thanks to our listeners. Stay well, everybody, and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.